Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion Podcast. And we are back. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, Paul. And you? Very good. I'm remote, but I can feel that you have someone very close to you and you're in a very small environment, isn't it? We are. I'm, I'm really pleased. I've got um, one of my colleagues from Notion, Ian Milbourne, with me. And uh, yeah, we're in a, a really cozy little um, phone booth at the office. You know, that creates a lot of a very endearing kind of conversations. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to hearing it. Can you maybe... Tell us, where does Ian fit in your framework? You know, if you think about why we're investing, you know, we're, we're investing in founders who share the same passion as we do to build global category-leading companies. You know, they're on a bonkers journey to grow from maybe 1 million in revenue from when we invest in them to 100 million, 200 million. But at some point within that journey, they want to realize the value of the business that they've created and you know, playing a really long-term game to create value for all the shareholders. Massive long-term value creation, because that's what's critical to create the vibrant ecosystem that, that we need in Europe. We, you know, we want to be creating businesses that are exiting or IPOing north of 100 million. Yeah. We want to be creating businesses that can go on to be generating a billion Absolutely. In, in revenues. There's a great quote from... Um, Bernard Lieto, who's the founder of Business Objects. And bear in mind, he sold that business for over $7 billion. Is there one thing you regret? He said, yes, I think I sold too early because I think I had a shot at being with a handful of top five enterprise software companies on the planet. That that kind that gives you kind of goosebumps. To, to yeah, that's a mindset, right? Yeah. yeah. Mindset wow. thing right there. And, and I think that's probably... It's just so important that people understand that's what we're talking about here, trying to achieve those kind of outcomes or, or bigger. We talk about that in the context of the art of exiteering. And uh, Ian specializes in that for Notion. So he plays a critical role for us in helping our founders to really fulfill their potential. Welcome, Ian. Hi, thank you. Ian, do you want to just tell us a few words about yourself and, and your role at Notion? Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, one of the founding partners at Notion. Background in corporate finance. So been working with companies, helping them realize value now for about 15 years. At Notion, my role has morphed over time. You know, as the number of companies that we deal with grows larger, I have morphed away from being an, an investing partner and now a CFO and COO and really quite excited and passionate about how I and Notion can help our founders make sure that they get the best value maximization that they can at the end of their journey. So more and more now, my role is looking at how do we help our portfolios gear themselves up for exits, both in the short term, the medium term, and the long term? And we're running a number of programmatic initiatives to start to talk to our portfolio companies about you know, what are the levers that you can pull that will um, drive a good outcome for you in the future. And just to put it in context, how many exit processes have you been through? Well, at Notion, so we've been through eight. You know, prior to that, at Message Labs, both buy side and sell side, probably another six. And prior to that, in my corporate finance days, another 10 or so. So, you know, a number of transactions creating significant amounts of shareholder value over the past couple of decades. And I think at Message Labs as well, you went through a couple of possible IPO processes as well. Yeah, we did. So we we looked at it quite seriously in 2004. And again, ultimately, when we sold the company to Symantec in 2008, we were running a dual track as well. So, if, you know, I've looked pretty seriously at IPOs a couple of times. 
So look, we invest in some extraordinary people and, and, and they blow my mind and and um, they're all on a mission to build, you know, extraordinary companies. And shouldn't they just focus on that and the exit takes care of itself? You often hear people saying that. You know, I think undoubtedly if you want to build a large outcome, I mean, you, you have to have the fundamentals of a good company. We all know that SaaS multiples correlate directly to scale and to growth rates. So, you know, you need to be in an exciting market with a company at scale. But I... I'm not sure I necessarily agree that the exit will take care of itself. You know, I, I quite often talk about the fact that when you're growing a company, you know, you have the luxury of time. You're able to make wrong decisions. You're able to change your strategy. And in some cases, you're even able to, to pivot to a new strategy. But once in an exit process, you know, you know, you really have to get it right at that point in time. And if you make mistakes during that process, it's, it's very hard to recover. So a lot of the lessons that I'm talking about, you know, best practice lessons and things that can be put in place ahead of an exit, you know, with, with a minimum amount of work to try and avoid some of the pitfalls that you can get into, but equally to try and be able to take control of your own process and, and not have to rely on advisors and, and you know, to understand your buyer universe, for example, all of which go to, to a very strong view in, in my mind that yes, build a great company, but if you want to really maximize value on an exit, you yeah, need to be thinking a little bit substantially ahead of time. So maybe we can think about it from two perspectives. One is the things that trip companies up that can turn a good transaction bad, if if you like, and, and the things on the other side that can actually allow you to increase value quite significantly. I mean, in your experience, you must have seen a, a number of things where you really feel there were, there were issues that could have been resolved three months, six months, three years before the transaction. I would say I broadly categorise them into two areas. So we quite often see we have transactions where there isn't a complete alignment amongst the stakeholders. So that could be between shareholders, it could be between the board of directors, it could be between the founder group. And so where, where companies have gone into sale transactions and there hasn't been that alignment, you know, that has definitely caused issues because it's very hard to hide that lack of alignment from the purchaser. And obviously once they get wind of that, they will you know try and use that in their negotiations and, and take that to price or indeed to, to terms. So I think we've seen we've seen that happen before. You know, a general lack of preparation can be can be dangerous. I think I have seen companies grossly underestimate how much of a burden the due diligence requirements will be on a company and being unprepared for it. Uh, so there are plenty of things that can trip people up. And, and these are all things that can be diagnosed ahead of any transaction. And, and the tools and the methodology and the, the programs we're putting in place are all designed to help our founders think about these things ahead of time. So if we take we take this kind of these two different perspectives with someone, one is about making sure you're ready and you're not going to get tripped up the other is about driving value mm -hmm. i'm a startup i've got 25 people in in the company you know realistically should i be thinking about any kind of long-term dd readiness or preparation right right now does that make sense well i think it absolutely does and you know to some extent you will be thinking about it because you're raising money from vcs and you'll continue to raise money from vcs and, and we all have our dd processes that we go through you know they are in no way shape or form as onerous as an exit process, but I certainly think you, you can make sure that core areas such as IP or your constitutional documents or your shareholder structure, share options, tax planning, you can start to think about these areas. Now, I'm not saying that you should be putting these at the top of your priority list because clearly you've, you've got a job to move from startup to, to grow up, but for sure you can be making sure that these areas are taken care of and that you, you understand them. We're using appropriate advisors to make sure that you know, you're addressing them. Um, you know, And then as you move up, upscale then I think certainly once you get to a into the bottom of the grow-up category you, you should be starting to think about your buyer universe you should be starting to make sure you understand your market dynamics in terms of who are the acquirers who have they acquired 
you know, why why have they acquired those companies? Why did they acquire those companies versus you? You know, all of these kind of questions are, are definitely worth having a, a session early on in your life cycle to make sure that you, you understand it. And then once you've done this once or twice, you can then track activity in your market. You, know, you have to form a view yourselves as to, to when is the optimal time for you to exit. And to some extent, that's driven by internal pressures and the desires of the, of the founders. But equally, you, you have to marry that up to, to understanding the market dynamics and, and understanding the wider forces. So do you think there's kind of like a, a checklist of things that um, a founder should just be constantly in the back of the mind? I, you know, if an opportunity does come knocking, that that I am ready to complete a transaction, if that makes sense for the investors. Yeah, and I, you know, I think uh, there's three three things at a high level when we talk about. It. Number one is the deeply readiness. You know, I've, I've discussed that, and we we run workshops and can walk companies through the kind of areas that companies will look at. The second is understanding the buyer universe and market dynamics. You know, you need to know where you fit relative to other possible targets, such that when someone does knock on your door, you have your own view on valuation and what you're worth and why why you want the company to buy. And then the third area is to make sure that you have a couple of advisors that you know relatively well, who you've engaged with previously, who will do a bit of free work for you and help you form your view on the buyer universe, such that you're not you're not blindsided when somebody picks up the phone to you. You know you're DD ready, you know where you're positioned in the marketplace and you know you have a friendly advisor that you can pick up the phone to. Yeah, and I think in, in many instances that, that just degree of readiness allows that whole process to go go so much better. What what actually drives value? Well, you know, to, to my mind, there's, there's two, there's no perfect answer to this, but there's two constituent parts. There's, there's the science of driving evaluation and there's the art of driving evaluation. You know, the science very much, you, you would look at SaaS multiples, uh, financial metrics, you know, you can look at public companies and there's a very, very clear correlation between the higher the revenue multiple you're going to get will correlate back to the size of your business and the scale of your growth. We see that time and time again. So, you know, it goes without saying that the larger and faster growing business that you have, uh, the higher valuation you should be able to achieve. You know, there's a lot more to that. We have numbers of examples of companies that are pre or low revenue selling for for very significant prices. So the art of valuation is is around driving a strategic price. And to my mind, that comes back to what, what I was alluding to earlier, really knowing your market in which you operate in, knowing the acquirers, being able to put yourself in the in the shoes of the product managers at the likes of IBM or, or Oracle and saying, well, why, why would they buy my company? Why would they buy it versus building it or a partner relationship? And really understanding what that would cost and what the barriers to entry are. And if you're in the right market at the right time with a product, that three or four large enterprises want to develop. And, you know, you're, you're in a really, really good place, but you need to make sure that you're aware of all that. And I think you put the two things together. You know, we always talk about competition and the ability to create competition, either real or the illusion of competition. And if you understand where you fit in your market and can clearly articulate that, then you are able to drive that competition, which combined with the with the science evaluation, you get the two together and, and you can really drive some quite exciting valuations. If you're thinking about an actual M&A process, so I've got an offer and maybe I've got an alternative potential acquirer as well. What, what's the role of the, the advisor or the, or the bank in that situation? And, and do they really deliver value? That's a good question. I, I've seen lots of instances of banks and advisory firms who will talk a very good game. I mean, you know, they're, they're guilty of over-promising and under-delivering. Particularly in terms of the black book, lot, lots of firms will talk about their black book and, the, and who they know. Was, you know, the reality is you're only as good as the last deal that you've done. So it's always a good idea to check with advisors who they actually know at companies and what deals they've, they've sold to them. Um, you know, so we, we recommend, as I said earlier, getting a couple of friendly advisors who you know, such that when the call does come in, 
you know, they can advise you on the sort of tactics, which, you know, for me is the, the main part of, a, of an advisor is the, is the fact that it's, it's quite rightly entrepreneurs and founders know how to grow companies, they're wrestling with the, the challenges of it, but they don't really understand the nuances of negotiating exits and, and driving value. And there's going to be a lot of pretty tough and pretty frank conversations. I liken the negotiation around a deal to playing a game of rugby. You, know, you get onto a field of rugby, you're all quite physical towards one another. There's some pretty tense moments, but you all shake hands at the end of it and walk off friends. Well, the same is true in an exit process. But if you are the founder of the company you know, and you're being bought out, you will be expected to go work there for a couple of years. So you need to distance yourself from the complex negotiations, which will, will get quite tense. So the advisor or an expert, you know, is somebody should be having those those conversations, playing the role of bad cop, making sure that the transaction is, is driven through and really adding to your team with someone who understands the nuances of, of negotiating and some of the tricks that these corporates might try and play on you. I, um, I know you've got some really interesting stories about the kind of the level of DD that comes with large transactions, because you've been involved in some very significant ones and, and fairly modest as well. Can you give us a little bit of an insight into what's involved? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's staggering. I tell the story of when we sold Message Labs to Symantec and we had our kickoff DD call once we'd signed the, the LOI. And there was myself, there was Stephen Chandler, one of the other partners at Notion, there was our head of legal sitting around a small round table in a, in a conference room. Um, and then one by one, the semantic team started to die. And there were in excess of 50 different people on the semantic side, you know, all of whom worked for a different department, but only did due diligence work. So that, that they would announce themselves, this is the real estate DD team, this is the share options DD team, this is the HR DD team. And all of these people, their sole job was to do uh, due diligence on possible um, target companies. Um, and, you know, and that would... We kind of questioned ourselves and thought, well, is this typical? Is this not typical? And, and what we've learned transitioning into Notion is that it is absolutely typical. We've actually had one example where there are in excess of 100 people on the due diligence team acquiring, you know, what was a relatively small value exit. So it is a it is a massive piece of work. And of course, the, the danger is that um, with a small number of people on the on the sell side, you end up with a bottleneck and a protracted process. And the temptation is to cut corners and speak the processor, which of course you can't do. So it's it is a significant piece of, you know, all-consuming all piece of work that you need to be prepared for. There's a couple of really big issues there. One is actually, how do you handle that whole process? The second is, how do you keep the business going? Because that's the last thing you want to do is to drop the ball on on uh, on company performance. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's the same as fundraising. When you're raising money, you need to make sure you're going to hit your targets. And when you're selling your business, you need to make sure that you're, you're going to hit your targets. Now, there may be a small amount of leeway given because of the pressure of the transaction, but you need to make sure you have a, a clear plan for who's going to do what. And, you know, in my mind, as I come back to that, it's probably your CFO if they have experience of doing this, these kind of transactions, or if not, your advisory firm or an expert that you brought in, who would be the single point person. So... For example, my role at um, a Message Labs in the transaction was every single piece of DD came through me as a filter. So there's one person who's got a holistic view across the transaction. And that, that is a full-time job. Um, so you need to have a team of people who will look at the transaction and then the rest of the management team can focus on, on growing the business. You know, And indeed, there will be pressures to start to develop an, an integration plan, which is obviously the, the big host deal piece of work. So there, you know, there'll be many pressures placed on the team, but, but paramount is to make sure that you continue to grow the business. You know, if for no other reason, the transaction might fall over. You don't want to go backwards for a couple of quarters. I mean, it's, it sounds like a kind of experience that could break people. Yeah, it is. You know, we have, we've had um, some of the comments that have come back. You know, we've, we've seen uh, lawyers nearly crumble under the pressure of deals. You know, founders have 
almost kind of wanted to walk away from the deal just because of the, the workload and pressure, which which again comes back to you know why we at Notion are starting to talk about these things early in company life cycles, just so people have an awareness of what's going to be around the corner. It's trying to help them to see this not as a as a one-off exercise in the in the distance, but actually something that you can start thinking about from the very beginning. Absolutely. You know, as, as I said, it's it's so easy to trip up during the process and you can't recover from that. So the more you can think about uh, the process and how you're going to behave and the pressures, the more you can think ahead of time, the better, and the more more forearmed you can be. One of the things that, uh, that comes up a lot is the importance of competition in a buy process. You talked about the universe of, of buyers. Just how important is it that you can create that kind of competitive tension during a sales process? Oh, it's you know significantly important. If, if all of your eggs are in one basket, it's very, very hard for you to get into the ascendancy and the driving seat. And you know, any, any findings that come out in due diligence, for example, will be aggressively used against you to, to come to price or, or terms or structure. If you are able to say, you know, to, to demonstrate, as I said, it doesn't have to be real. If you are able to demonstrate that there are other people out there that you can sell to, which comes back to the, the wider piece around the buyer universe. You know, you need to be able to name drop into conversation other other people. Um, you know, don't forget if someone is trying to buy you, there's a very strong chance that somebody else would like to buy you as well. So you don't necessarily have to have the competition, but it, it's vitally important to remain in the ascendancy for as long as you can. And, if you know the fallback position, if nothing else, is to say, well, we're very happy to go and grow this business. You know, we've, we've got funding to do it, we've got the team to do it. We're happy to walk away. So you should, at no point, let yourself get on the back foot by not having a competition in place, or indeed by not letting your buyer know that if, if the terms don't feel right, you're happy to go it alone. We're talking mostly about M and A, and to be honest, in, in Europe, that's the vast majority of kind of outcomes for entrepreneurs will be M and A. But there is obviously the, the potential in the, the glory of an IPO. Is there much different, do you think, in terms of the, the preparation and the readiness? Well, I mean, clearly the, the buyer universe piece becomes far less relevant. But with an IPO, you know, you would be required to know your market inside out backwards and to be able to talk about the same kind of themes. Who is my competition? Why are we better? Why are we going to win? You know, you'll be required to have a view on the market dynamics and how it's how it's going to evolve. You know, it is it is a very intensive process. Mainly driven by the fact that it's it's a highly um, regulated environment, so there's a number of, of requirements that you have with an IPO. You know, so I, I always go back to basics to say the first thing you need to realise is an IPO is not an exit; it's just a fundraising. It's the next step on your journey. You know, it's access to, to to public capital. It is a very involved process. You know, again, you'll need to think about how how do we operate in the business on the one hand, how do we complete the IPO on the other hand. It's even more important that you hit your targets. You know, you, you are looking for that uptick post-IPO and then if you missed your first quarterly earnings forecast, you're going to get a very tough time. So it's very, very important that you you know who's going to run the business, who's going to do the IPO. And it really is it's a two to three year process, in my view, from starting to plan the IPO because there's, there's other requirements that don't exist in M&A. So for example, the governance requirements, um, you know, who is going to join your board? Are you aware of all the, the various requirements? So it's not for everybody. You know, I think you need to be a real category leader in a really exciting market. You you need to have a an agreement. You need real alignment amongst the team that everybody is up for the IPO and for sticking around two three years post it. You need to be sure that you know the minimum size requirement we talk about is a hundred million dollars of revenue growing at circa you know eighty five percent would be average. So that's pretty you know at scale to grow at eighty five percent is a pretty big ask. You need to be confident that you can deliver that and then continue to grow. Uh, into the market but you know not for all people but for some for some companies that want 
everything that goes with the IPO and the, the kudos, is, it can be a really good outcome. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an exciting. We all want to be there and have the chance to ring yeah. the bell. We want many IPOs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we do. Um, we started uh, around about just over two years ago as a venture capital firm with like 30, 35, almost 40 companies in our portfolio. And we've been investing since 2009. You know, managing exits is is, is a pretty big part of our of our job and we were getting lots of experience from the companies we were working with but we also wanted to broaden out and, and between us we spoke to about 20 CEOs of technology firms in Europe that achieved significant exits so people like Bernard Lieto at Business Objects, people like uh, Eldar Tuvi, people like our colleagues here Joss White and Stephen Chandler with Message Labs, people like Stefan Dorsch at, at, at Neil and there were some really clear things that came out of that one of the most important was, and it's always there, is the team. And ultimately, you know, an, an acquirer is acquiring, yes, your IP and yes, your revenues. But most importantly, they're, they're acquiring the people. So how does the team need to prepare themselves? What does the organization need to look like? What kind of skills and expertise do they need to have? Now, I know that's very stage dependent, mm-hmm. but maybe just at a high level, you could talk about that. There's two parts to it. There's the execution side and what does the team is look like but then there's the there's the, the science and the, the art of the valuation point so you you know you need to be thinking about who in your team has an exit experience so who can who can drive the process and, and explain some of the pitfalls that we've been discussing but then who is it that's going to take all the information around the market and the dynamics of the market and, and really articulate why your product is the best in class and, and why you're going to win. You know, in some ways, it's akin to pitching for fundraising because somebody needs to be able to stand up in front of the buyer and, and really articulate very crisply why your product is the best in class and why it absolutely has to be bought. You know, I, I talk about putting yourself in the shoes of the, of the corp dev person who's got this buy, build or partner decision. You know, why is he going to buy buy your piece of tech and why are they going to pay a strategic price for it? So that that's so important that someone can clearly articulate that, you know, put some sizzle around it. And, and equally, that also applies to the functions of the business. So I said earlier that um, quite often the acquirers will have DD-specific functional teams. Well, someone in, in your team needs to be doing the reverse of that. So someone needs to be articulating the go-to-market strategy, the pipeline conversion metrics. Someone needs to be able to take your unit economics, your you know the guardrails that we speak about, and bring those to life and, and put some sizzle around them. So it's it's around making sure that people are understand the process, understand what is required, and are and are able to uh, succinctly present the story in a very crisp way. Yeah, because I think there's something you touched on earlier on, and which does come back again to people is about alignment and mm-hmm. and, and making sure everybody there, the the senior management team, and then the board are aligned around the the outcome they want to achieve yeah that is something we've seen haven't we a few times where if there's if there's any gaps in that then it can cause real problems yeah and as i said earlier if there is a lack of alignment for any reason it's very hard to hide that from the buyer it's, it's absolutely critical you have that alignment and also it's critical that you understand precisely the role that everybody in the team is going to play it may well be you know there's a natural exuberance of founders and management teams a transaction you know they spent years working towards this big event. So it's natural people want to be involved with it, but you need to be disciplined and say, no, you know, we need to have a team of people that will do the transaction and then a team of people that will focus on the business. And both sides are as important. And it's, it is important that's positioned really well. Yeah. So the business can keep on performing. Because ultimately what we're selling, you know, the acquirer wants to know that they're buying a business that's got real kind of real legs, that yeah. it's got, it's got a, some significant potential to grow into. Absolutely. Um, and there's some really, really interesting things that came out of, of those CEOs' discussions. 
if you take away the how do we actually manage the exit process, the three things I keep on coming back to are solve a really big problem, hire extraordinary people and, and think really, really big. Um, and if you can combine that with, I think, some of the preparatory work that allows you to say, and we are thinking also long term about how do we turn that big asset we're creating into great value. I think you can achieve some quite extraordinary outcomes. And virtually every single person we spoke to had been acquired by an organization they've been working with for a number of years. And that was an incredibly common thread, wasn't it? You know, and it comes back to why we are talking about bio-universe preparation and understanding who's going to buy you. I mean, it's all of the feedback that we've gleaned, all of my experience suggests it's very, very, very rare that you will get a cold inbound term sheet from someone that you don't know. So, yeah, it's just about getting on the, being proactive and getting on the front foot. And our managing partner here, Stephen Chandler, he was the CFO at Message Labs, and he tells this story about how between 2002 and 2008, he would go and visit the CEO of Symantec at least once a year just to give him an update on the business. And we had a strategic and commercial partnership with them. But it wasn't by accident or that he was having those conversations. It was by design because he, he knew it was important that they, they had long-term visibility. To summarise, it's really, really important that you appreciate that there are some techs and techniques that you can put in place now to ensure that you maximise value on exits. Number one, make sure you understand your bio-universe and your market and your market dynamics. And you really understand that at a product level and you build relationships with the product managers and the core dev people in the relevant companies. Number two, make sure that you realise that DD Readiness is an ongoing project. That the requirements will be incredibly onerous and you don't want to trip yourselves up. So make sure that you're, as you're building your company, you're, you're always thinking, am I in a position where I understand the key areas of DD? Do I understand that there won't be anything that's going to cause issues for my transaction? And then finally, number three, you know, focus on the value drivers. As we said, you know, reward scale, reward growth. Make sure you build a really, really good company. But at the same time, appreciate that valuation is a, is a science and an art. And make sure that you are you're doing what you can to achieve both of those points. And I think if you do all of this, you know, build a great company, then when you come into the exit process, forewarned is forearmed. You'll be in a much better position than someone coming into a cold. And ultimately, you should drive a much better result. Thank you, Ian. That was, that was great. And, and uh you know, excited to be to uh, get involved in some more of these exit conversations yeah. with you. Can't wait. Uh, Looking forward to it. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Stephen. Have a good day, guys. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Bye. Bye bye.